Please open your Bible to the first chapter of the book of Acts. We continue our studies of Acts, which we began last month. Today we study uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 12 until verse 26. Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. And these were, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akeldama, which is, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph and Barsabbas, who was also called, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. May God be praised through the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we always want to pray when we are studying your word because we require the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit. More than that, Lord. Would you open our hearts that we would attend to your word, its lessons, and that we would look to Jesus in faith, ready to serve him with great zeal. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Imagine being in a room and suddenly realizing that you are in historically remarkable company. As an example, you might have found yourself present in the Pennsylvania State House in Philadelphia on August 2nd, 1776. That building was later named, renamed Independence Hall. And you were there for the signing of the U.S. Declaration of Independence. Looking around the room, the 56 faces would include future presidents John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, the noted revolutionary Samuel Adams, the important theologian John Witherspoon, and the most extraordinary American of all, Benjamin Franklin. Or... 
looking through a different arena, imagine visiting the locker room of the 1981 North Carolina Tar Heels basketball team during their national championship season. Seated around the lockers, you would see two legendary coaches, Dean Smith and Roy Williams, along with future NBA stars, James Worthy. He would go to the Hall of Fame. And there was Sam Perkins and then... Oh, by the way, not to mention 18-year-old Michael Jordan, who I think needs no explanation. Little realized at the time, historians consider this one of the greatest athletic collections of people ever assembled. Now, neither of these examples, one political, one athletic, compare with 120 followers of Jesus who met in the upper room during the 10 days between the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ into heaven and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Luke records that there were the Apostle Peter along with the Apostle John. These are titans of redemptive history in terms of the work they did, their writings, their labors would shake the world. We think of Matthew, another of the disciples, wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Not to mention the other, they're all named here, the remaining members of Jesus' band of disciples. But that's not all who's there. Present as well was the Virgin Mary, arguably the most significant woman ever to live. And there were her two sons, James and Jude, who both would write important New Testament books. But it doesn't stop there. We can surmise that there were some of the other lesser but still fascinating members of the Jerusalem circle of believers who would have been present. Very likely Nicodemus would have been there, that erudite, uh, well-connected Pharisee who went to see Jesus by night secretly in John 3 and was told by the Lord that he needed to be born again. Probably it included Joseph of Arimathea who took down the body of Jesus from the cross and donated his grave. Maybe Simon of Cyrene, who assisted the bloodied Lord Jesus carrying his cross to Golgotha. Now, at the time, these were not people of renown to the broader world. But in time, this would be seen as one of the greatest gatherings ever. Well, these fascinating people were gathered in their room after the momentous events that would shape their lives and the entire world. Jesus Christ, God's son, had been crucified causing most of them to go into hiding at first. But then Christ Christ was raised from the dead, and he regathered them. And for 40 days, the disciples were taught by Jesus the truths of his kingdom. Now the Lord had visibly ascended before them into heaven, leaving this band of people behind to, to be his witnesses, to lay the foundation of his worldwide church. And for now, they were waiting for the power Jesus promised to arrive through the coming of God's Holy Spirit, and he would enable them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and to the very ends of the world, Acts 1.8. Now, on one level, it's difficult to speak of this gathering in an exemplary fashion because these apostles were unique. There's a once-for-all redemptive activity taking place here. They have a unique calling never to be repeated, as we'll see from the qualifications There are no apostles alive today. They were to accomplish the once-for-all work of launching the New Testament church and writing the New Testament. And their main decision, we will find, involved calling a new apostle to replace the fallen Judas Iscariot. That, too, is an event never to be repeated until the end of the world. 
And so there's something unique about this, and we want to be careful drawing examples. At the same time, we will view them as believers who are waiting for God's promised blessing through the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them to expect the Spirit not many days from now, verse 5. That's the uniqueness of the event and the people. I will share my thing. I've already shared my perspective on this matter. The The New Testament calls them the foundation on which the church is to be built. Well, surely the church is to be built along the design, along the dynamics of the foundation. And so we may view this gathering in the upper room as exemplary for all Christians. As we consider their example, we may learn how to prepare for the Lord's coming with power, how to make ourselves ready to serve the Lord when the Spirit would come in his wonderful way. James Boyce summarizes the example they provide. The second half of Acts 1 shows the early Christians practicing obedience, fellowshipping, praying, studying the scriptures, and choosing leaders in preparation for their ministry. Well, first, we will see them obediently waiting for Pentecost. Luke tells us that the followers of Jesus gathered in the upper room, and many Christians, maybe most, I think, assume that this is the upper room where the Last Supper was celebrated and where Jesus appeared to the disciples on the night of his resurrection. Now, we can't be certain because we're not explicitly told that. Acts 12 will later show the church gathering in the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark. But in defense of that, it is true that Luke uses the definite article. He doesn't say in a upper room, an upper room. He says in the upper room. That makes it possible... I think probable even, that this is the same location as those other dramatic events. And they had returned here after witnessing Jesus ascend from the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's journey a little over a mile uh, outside Jerusalem. Now Luke provides a partial list of those who are present, centered on the 11 disciples who were left after the defection of Judas, the names are given here, just as they appear, not in the same order, but as they appear elsewhere in the Gospels. A special notice is the mention of the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. I think that the presence of the women in this gathering is very significant. It's true that the Bible restricts ordained leadership in the church to biblically qualified men. And yet we're shown here that women, Christian women, are full partners in the church, in its worship, in its prayer, in its spread of the gospel. It's wonderful that we see them here with the the men and the women gathered together. And of course, it's noteworthy that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is present. Now, I discussed it at some length this morning, so I'll be briefer tonight, but it's very interesting in light of the claims that are later made, particularly by the Roman Catholic Church, about Mary, that she is co-redemptrix, that we appeal for God's grace through her intercession. And that's why she's prayed for you. She's venerated, the, the veneration The Roman Catholic Church denies they worship her, they only venerate her. That is what we call a distinction without a difference. But notice how different it is here, without overdwelling on the point. Uh, They're not looking for her to be their leader. She's not their leader. They're not looking for her to be a replacement of Jesus. In fact, the one with Jesus gone, the one for whom they were looking, was the third person of the Trinity, 
whom Jesus would send. Jesus would be one in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is the one, by the way, Peter, although he takes the lead here, is not the one truly in charge. He's not the vicar of Christ. He's not the one who takes the place of Christ. That will be the Holy Spirit. And so Mary is present as a Christian. She's praying alongside them to Jesus Christ, her earthly son, the son of God, who is her Lord and Savior for the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's notable that her sons are there, Jesus' half-brothers. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 that Jesus made a special post-resurrection appearance to James, who would later be in a different way called an apostle. He writes the book of James. He would lead the Jerusalem church after uh, some years. And it seems that although they had not believed during the time of the gospel, clearly these brothers of Jesus had been brought to saving faith. Now, Luke gives the number of this gathering as 120. Now, precisely, he says, about 120. And that does seem to be significant. I. Howard Marshall argues that 120 was the requirement at that time, not in the Bible, but in the statutes of Jerusalem. If you wanted to found a new sect within Judaism, you needed at least 120 men to do it. That may or may not be true. But when you look at the way the book of Revelation, for instance, uses the symbolism of numbers, you can see that on the one hand, there's a parallel, uh, the 12 apostles and 120 to the, this is the new Israel, the church, there's continuity with the the tribes of of Israel. Uh, Not only that, but Revelation 1, uh, 7 describes symbolically the church in glory by the number 144,000. Now, it's been a little while since I preached through Revelation here, but I hope you remember we should not take that as a literal number. So once it's fulfilled, or that's some segment of a super echelon within the, within the uh, redeemed in heaven. No, it's, it's a symbol that shows the connection between, this origin, between Israel and Jesus as the new, new deliverer and the church as the new Israel, but also from this original gathering. This 120 may be seen as the core of the New Testament church, uh, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and it will multiply. This will be the foundation, the work of the apostles, and it will multiply according to the apostolic pattern. 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. Multiplying, but according to the pattern. It shows us that this is the representative church. This is the original core church. What we are doing today is an organic extension of that one, uh, of that original band of believers waiting for the Holy Spirit in the upper room. I think it's very exciting. An organic spiritual connection by the Holy Spirit with that group. Well, the first important lesson we observe is that Christians here were preparing for their future service to Jesus by practicing obedience to his commands. They were waiting. They knew they were waiting. They they knew what their mission was. Roughly, they were going to be his witnesses. And Jesus had told them in verse 4 not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he explained was the coming of the Holy Spirit. And this shows us that as we seek, maybe you're a new believer, a young believer, a recently converted person, and you say, I I don't know what the Lord's going to do with my life. I'm interested. How do I present myself and prepare? Well, one answer is to start engaging in the habit of giving obedience to the precepts and commands of the Bible. Start thinking and acting biblically. If there are sins that you need to stop, you should stop them. I was converted at age 30. 
And there were some social habits I'd picked up in the world that needed to come to a screeching halt. And if they had not, and I remember right away, I had some Christian friends say, do you know these things need to come to a screeching halt? They showed me from the Bible, and by the grace of God, they came to a screeching halt, and I could hardly be serving the Lord if I had not turned away from uh, sinful habits I had learned in the world. That may be true for you as well. There are practices that you need to start. You need to start attending church regularly. The Bible says, let us not leave off the public worship with the people of God. You need to be reading your Bible. You need to start praying. You need to practice tithing. You need to start living in accordance with God's word. And this will be part of the foundation by which you prepare yourself and present yourself for whatever future service the Lord would have you to do. I sometimes think of Hudson Taylor, who's a young, newly converted man. Hudson Taylor would go on to accomplish great works for the Lord as the founder of the China Inland Mission, one of the great missionaries to China. And he was very fervent as a new believer, and he wanted to obey the Bible. And he saw in the Bible that he was to pray for all things. And so he believed it was his duty not to ask for anything. And if he needed anything... He would pray about it. He was going to obey that, that verse, that commandment, and he was going to, to live in that way. Well, at one time he had a very menial job, and his boss forgot to pay him. And a couple of weeks went by, and he literally is starving. He doesn't have any, he has no money. He's not eating his meals. And his boss sees him and inquires and realizes he forgot to pay him. And he asks Hudson Taylor, why did you not tell me? He says, I was trying to be committed to the Bible's teaching. I was trying to be obedient. Later in life, Hudson Taylor said that wasn't very mature. There wasn't very good hermeneutics involved in that. But the principle was one that was a blessing to me. The resolution, the aim is one that the Lord blessed in my life. They were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come and they were obedient to the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to start practicing uh, obedience in what we get rid of and turn away from and what we embrace. Now, in a second example the early disciples showed was their commitment to prayer. We're particularly told that they were devoting themselves to prayer. There were resources the Lord had promised, chief of which was the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so they were devoting themselves to prayer. This word for devoting has the connotation that they were persevering. They were persisting in praying. They were praying all the time, constantly. Matthew Henry writes that when God intends some great mercy for his people, the first thing he does is set them to praying. And it's true that the record of great movements of the Holy Spirit, it's true the Spirit has come once for all at Pentecost. We'll see that in chapter 2. But Jesus also said the Spirit blows where he wills. And the supernatural power that the Holy Spirit exerts is not uniform at all times and all places. And so we need the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we, we therefore pray, not merely for what God has promised, but for whom he has promised Christians realize that our work of witnessing the gospel, of of leading others to saving faith, requires supernatural power. They are dead in transgressions. We need the supernatural means of the word of God. And then we need it attended, as we see in Ezekiel 37, for instance, by the power and coming of the Holy Spirit. Preach, son of man, Ezekiel was told. And he obediently preached, but then the wind blew. It was his spirit who gave power and life. They were praying in general, and in particular, they were praying for the coming of the Holy Spirit. How often I think of Charles Spurgeon's pulpit prayer. In fact, virtually every Sunday, 
almost without fail, as I walked from that chair to this pulpit, I silently prayed to the Lord those words of Spurgeon, Lord, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Send now thy Holy Spirit, because all the labors that I do will be of no avail unless they are answered with supernatural unction from on high, the, the provision of God, both for him who speaks and for those who hear. Now, clearly this means that the Spirit's presence should be sought. People wonder, is it okay to seek the presence of the Spirit of God? And clearly the answer is yes, praying for the Spirit. We mean the special operations of the Spirit. The, the power the Spirit gives to accomplish particular works that we are asking for, we should seek that through prayer, just as the disciples were doing in the upper room. It is not a matter of doubt to pray for what God has promised. John Calvin says, prayer is not a sign of doubting, but it is a witness with our certain hope and confidence since we ask the Lord for things that we know he has promised. What boldness we should have when we are praying for those things that God has promised, chief of which is the Holy Spirit. Well, my friends, let it not be said of us, and I'm afraid in large measure it could, what James, the brother of Jesus and later the author of of that epistle, writes. He says, you have not because you ask not. Surely a want of prayer, a lack of fervor in prayer. How many evangelical, conservative evangelical churches in America today no longer have a congregational prayer, much less a prayer meeting? How about how essential these things are? What, what, what we require, only God can give. And the, the, the apostles were praying for the outpouring, for the coming of the Spirit. We are to pray for the Spirit's coming. James 5.16 says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Never think that your prayer is wasted. Maybe you don't ever know how that prayer was answered. Maybe we, we've had some here. We pray for things fervently and it does not appear or has not yet appeared that the Lord has been pleased to answer it. No, no. He answers prayer. He answers prayer according to his infinite wisdom by his sovereign power Prayer is never wasted. Prayer is always needed. I think of Paul writing in Ephesians, pray for me as an apostle. We should be praying for one another. We should be praying for God's work in our own lives. We should be praying. Surely our generation of the church in America and the once Christian West should be praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You've heard me say it before. Should the Lord tarry, I do believe, that centuries from now, people are going to write books about the very years you and I are here. And they're going to talk about the remarkable collapse, the swiftness of the collapse of a culture. And then someone's going to point out, isn't it interesting that the evangelical churches couldn't be bothered to pray? Too busy watching sports, too busy taking part in the things of the world. Maybe they're good things. My friends, we must pray if we desire the work of God to be done in our times. Now, Luke notes that their prayer was with one accord. There was unity. Now, on the one hand, prayer breeds unity. If you find yourself at odds with a fellow Christian, one of the best things you can do is start praying for that person. Start praying for the blessing. You'll, you'll, You'll discover how hard it is to maintain enmity for a brother or sister in Christ for whom you are praying for their blessing. Don't pray for God to judge them. I learned long ago in my own experience not, that it's not right for me to pray in the same prayer for God to show mercy on me and vengeance on somebody else. No, no, we pray for one another. And, and 
prayer fosters unity, and unity fosters the spirit of prayer. Notice he calls them brothers. He might have said brothers and sisters, but it's all in there. It's a family, and family has unity. Unity is fostered by shared faith, shared doctrine, a shared gospel purpose. And they're praying in one accord, sweetened their fellowship of waiting, and facilitated, no doubt, their persistence in prayer. Now, it was in this setting that Peter stood up among the brothers, and he noted there was a problem which called for a solution before their ministry was launched by the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the problem was the vacancy left among the number of the apostles by the betrayal and the defection of Judas Iscariot. Peter argues, verse 117, uh, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. The point is that Jesus had wanted 12 12 apostles and they only had 11. And so something had to be done about that. And, And he reasoned, I suppose he may have had a revelation from the Lord, we're not told. He realized that the fledgling church's leadership called for 12 apostles that would mirror the 12 tribes and the 12 patriarchs of ancient Israel. And he realized that this leadership situation needed to be settled before the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now Luke provides an aside. That's why in most English Bibles, the ESV does this, Verses 18 and 19 are in a parenthesis. I think that's actually correct. This is not Peter's speech. By the way, you know it's not Peter's speech because he translates an Aramaic word when he himself would have been speaking in Aramaic. When you're speaking in a language, you don't translate into a different language the language that you're using. And so it's Luke giving this aside for his readers. And here's what he says. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Akeldama, which is, that is, field of blood. Now, people would argue there's a discrepancy since Matthew's gospel said that he took the coins, the 30 pieces of silver, and he threw them to the priest. And now Luke says that he acquired a field. Well, the clear answer is that the money was taken by the priest that he gave them, and it was used for that field, and it was attributed, therefore, to Judas. That's really not that hard. But the description, I think, mainly notes the horror of this situation from one who we should presume was one of their friends. It's a whole fascinating subject. There seems to be no indication that the disciples ever suspected Judas. Jesus knew the whole time, and there's some comments made when the writing of the Gospels take place, but he'd been one of their brothers. He'd been one of their friends. There must have been a shock. It may have been a blow to their confidence a sense of alarm, not only that he betrayed Jesus, but this dreadful end of his life, which is a portent of final judgment. But according to Peter in verse 16, Judas's betrayal was explained not by a failing of the apostleship or not as proof of some shocking insecurity, but rather as the fulfillment of Holy Scripture. Look at verse 16. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He's referring to the way that Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in his arrest. Now, the point was that this happened because God's sovereignty had ordained it, and it was foretold in the Old Testament. 
as well as Judas's dreadful end. It was part of the foreordained events associated with Jesus' crucifixion. Now, Peter further then argues from the Old Testament that a replacement should be found. And he's going to cite two verses from the book of Psalms. Now, very interestingly, James Boyce at this point makes the argument that this shows that among, as well as praying, they were, they were practicing obedience. We should be doing that. They were praying and learning to pray, but they were also devoting themselves to the study of Scripture. Well, that cannot be proven, I think, because these verses may have been given to him during that 40-day period by Jesus, although I think the sense of the text shows that it is Peter drawing conclusions from his own study of Scripture. Now, that being the case, another thing we must do as we prepare for God to use us, for God to use our church, for him to use us, him to use our children, is we must study the Bible. We must come to an understanding of the teaching of Holy Scripture, and that seems to be what Peter is doing. He, he received a hermeneutics course from Jesus who taught Christ-centered Bible interpretation and the truths of the kingdom of God, but he seems to have arrived at these conclusions by his own study, first of Psalm 69, verse 25, and then uh, later of Psalm 109, verse 8. Now, here's the first of them. It's in verse 20. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. Psalm 69, verse 25. Now, you may go, now, where does Peter get that? How do you read that? How do you cherry-pick that verse out of Psalm 69 and then say it was about Judas? Judas, well, it's not quite that, that's not quite a fair representation. Psalm 69 is David in one of those psalms that is attributed over and over in the New Testament to be looking ahead to the sufferings of Jesus on the cross. And among other things, he's talking about the mockers and the scoffers and those who betrayed him. In fact, Psalm 69 is the second most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament after Psalm 22, uniformly taking it as foretelling. He, uh, Jesus, when Jesus cried, I, I thirst, that was a quote from Psalm 69, the, them casting lots for his clothing, that's Psalm 69. And so Peter, very reasonably, having come pretty far in his Biblical interpretation says we should understand this statement about the betrayer to be speaking of Judas. May his camp be desolate. Let no one dwell in it. Now his point was, again, that this was not some crippling weakness in the disciple. It was not some failure that they had done. Rather, it was a portion of God's foreordained and prior revealed plan. Now, the second passage is from Psalm 109, which also looks forward to the sufferings of Christ. Verse 8 says, let another take his office. And so from this second psalm, also looking forward to the malicious opposition against Jesus, and Peter finds biblical guidance for their problem. From his study of Scripture, he reasons, let another take his office. He concludes, we then should fulfill the, the, the vacant uh, apostleship. Now, as we're talking about the theme of how were the apostles preparing, how were they using their time profitably, how were they uh, seeking to be useful to the Lord when the Holy Spirit came, we know here again the importance of studying God's Word. You and I are living in a time where certainly in America increasingly does not value a learned clergy. And primarily in Protestant churches over the last several hundred years, there's been a belief that those who are set apart full-time for the preaching of God's Word should be specially equipped. And of course, Paul talks about let the workmen be, be, be prepared. 
and for this today, it's a standard in our denomination, that a minister of the gospel will have years of training. Uh, ideally, he will learn Greek, he will learn Hebrew and gain a facility with those languages. Now, why is that needed? Because that's, that's the original text behind which we have our translations. We're to be able to study it. We're to have a sound grasp of theology, apologetics, many things. And you and I are living in a time when actually the seminary numbers are crashing in America for a lot of reasons. But the most significant one is that the, the, newer, the, the newer age rave of Reformed evangelical churches no longer thinks it's necessary to have a learned clergy. Well, how mistaken that was. Peter clearly had been studying. Moreover, we notice how important it is, far more important, I think, than we have thought in recent years, is the establishment of biblical leadership to the church. Uh, many Christians think of ecclesiology as a secondary, maybe a tertiary matter. It doesn't really matter. We'll get to it later. I remember uh, 10 or 15 years ago, I received a request to do a conference call uh, with the headquarters staff of a well-known, far more known than we are, uh, evangelical reform ministry. And for whatever reason, they asked me to advise them on church leadership issues. And so I was answering their questions on this conference call. The whole staff was there. And after a while, I said, by the way, just so that you know, what I'm describing to you goes by the term Presbyterianism. And I'm not trying to voice Presbyterianism on you, although I'd be glad to. I'm just persuaded and I'm making arguments that this is what the Bible teaches. And it's going through the relevant passages about biblical leadership, a plurality of elders, those kinds of things. And the man who, very famous man who was the leader of it, he says, you know, we find this all boring, to be honest. And we've just, we've never attended to these things. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of doing this because my board wanted me to do it, but it's really kind of boring and we don't really care about it. I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to guess that they're going to pay for that. Well, now 15, 16 years later, they no longer exist because of leadership issues that were unbiblical and have led to the collapse of their ministry. The apostles understand that we must organize ourselves along biblical lines where Americans are innovative people, but church leadership is not a place for innovation. There's the biblical offices of deacon and of elder. There's the pastor. There's, there's, there's a, 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 an approach to things like worship. There's a pattern for the preaching of the word of God. We are not to interject our wisdom. We are to establish biblical leadership. I find increasingly today people coming to our church 10 years ago, this was not the case. It was almost always Reformed doctrine, and that makes me happy that you want to be here for Reformed doctrine because these are the truths that give life. I find increasingly people are saying, you know, we want biblical eldership. And if so, you are wise to do so. Uh, biblically sound leadership is a needed preparation for the work of the gospel. Well, how do you choose someone to become an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, that's how the passage concludes and the apostles' actions involve three steps. First of all, they discerned the necessary qualifications. Secondly, they prayed. And then thirdly, they committed the decision into God's hands by the casting of lots. Let's look at those things they did. Now, first, they realized, as we must always realize, that there are qualifications provided by the Lord for the offices of the church. When you look in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, you'll see the qualifications of an elder. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had a session meeting, and you all nominated men to, 
uh, to, to be brought into the elder training and perhaps to be set before you later this year to be elected as elder. And I began that meeting the way I always begin it, by reading the qualifications that are given in the Bible because there are no other qualifications. It doesn't say he must be a rich banker. It doesn't say he must be prominent in the world. It doesn't say he must be brilliant. No, there's the biblical qualifications, and those must be heeded by us. And this is what they do. Now, there's two qualifications they note. The first is that one of the men, verse 21, who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. So the first qualification for one of the 12 apostles replacing Judas is it had to be someone who had been loosely a disciple who'd been in their number from the start. Now the start, remember John chapter 1, is really immediately upon Jesus' baptism. Within a few days, he had called all the 12. I think what's happening here is they're reasoning that's what Jesus did. Jesus, he got them all at one time. And they had all those, we, we had all those experiences together. And we were there. We're going to talk about them. We're going to write about them. We needed to be there. And therefore, the person that we're going to add to the number must be qualified in the way that the Lord had done for us. That seems like sound reasoning. You'll see the calling of the original disciples in John 1, 35 to 51. Now, secondly, they must be, he must be a witness, verse 22, with us a witness to his resurrection. Now, one of the things you're going to see in the book of Acts as we study it, it's a, a book that consists of a large, number, a large amount of sermonic material. And the number one theme that you will see in the sermons of the apostles is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as proof of the Bible's claims that he is the Lord and the Savior promised in the Bible. Some people will say this means the resurrection is the center of our theology. I wouldn't put it quite that way. It's the cross, the, the cross, it's the, the, whole, the whole redemptive achievement of Christ's first coming to deal with sin. He died for sin. He rose from the grave. That's the center of our theology. But without doubt, the center of the apostolic apologetic to the world, the apostolic witness to the world, the claim they made was that this Christ whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. And to make that claim, they needed to be eyewitnesses. They must not have doubts. They must be able to give personal attestation to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. By the way, uh, one of the proofs of the resurrection is the fact that they did so because they did so in almost every case at the cost of their lives. Of the apostles that we know about, only the apostle John was not put to death for his witness to the resurrection of Jesus and the implications, and he probably wished he'd been put to death sometimes instead of the, the things that they actually did to him. And so these were men who were going to suffer enormously and the opposition of the world and the, and the opposition of Satan and the sufferings and the labors that they would engage in to bear testimony to the resurrection, they had to be eyewitnesses. And the fact that they did so is a great proof that the resurrection happened because their testimony was valid. Well, two men, it seems only two men, that's not surprising, met those qualifications. And they're identified in verse 23. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and then a second man named Matthias. Well, let me just say again, biblical qualifications are essential today for the offices of deacon and elder in the church, also for the teaching elder uh, post, which, which I am and others occupy. I will say the other night when our session met and we saw the men you nominated, our first response was, 
Thank God that we've got a lot of good men in this church. <laughs> but it's not whether we like them or whatnot. A, a, a fair biblical assessment of the qualifications for the offices of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing they did. Secondly was they prayed. Now, in this case, they re- we should always be praying about important matters. Please be praying because you are going to be the ones who elect them. The Holy Spirit speaking through the congregation. It makes me a little nervous because it's a big deal in the church and I don't get a vote. But I trust the Lord and I pray for you, we should be praying. But in their case, they prayed for the Lord to be the one to make his selection. They were not qualified to appoint someone to the apostleship of the Lord Jesus Christ, to a man who would bear power of attorney in his witness for the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And so verse 24 and 5, they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take this place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They had a problem they were not qualified to solve. By the way, that that will happen to us, not in such dramatic ways. I was talking to our interns after a session meeting recently, and I made the point to them that our job is to do two things. Uh, We're to do the right thing as a session, and then we're to try to do it in the right way. And in 99% of the cases, maybe 98, the right thing is not hard to figure out. What's hard is the right way, (laughs) and often where we fail or where problems come is doing it in the right way. And there are times when we know what the right thing is, but we do not see a right way to do it. And my counsel always is in those settings. If we, have the, if we know what needs to be done, but we do, it's important that we do it the right way. We should commit it to prayer. We should wait upon. This is good advice for you in your personal life. When you don't know the way of going forward to do the right thing, pray to the true and living God, Jesus Christ at his right hand, and ask for him to reveal the way. I remember witnessing to my parents, they were so offended by the offensive nature of the things I was saying when I was newly converted at age 30. And a pastor friend said, I can tell this is not working very well. Your parents seem very offended. Well, I said, I'm probably being offensive. He says, why don't you do this? Why don't you pray? I said, I don't know how to witness to my parents. There's so, so many dynamics. And he said, why don't you pray for God to give you the opportunity? And I did, and he did. And by God's grace, in that case, it was my father, came to saving faith later by means I do not know. My mother also came to saving faith. We pray for God to accomplish what we don't have or don't, sometimes don't even know what to do. Now, in this case, they didn't even have the right to do so. And so they prayed not merely for wisdom, they prayed for supernatural revelation. This is a unique event. It will never happen again to the end of the world. The calling of the 12th apostle to replace Judas Iscariot. And so thirdly, they uh, ascertained the Lord's answer by the casting of lots. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, the purpose of throwing lots, it was a way of allowing God to be providentially, by the way the lots came out, uh, be, to be the one who made the decision. And there was Old Testament precedence for this practice. The, the, in, Deuter- Deuter- in Numbers 26.55, the, the land apportioned to the tribes of Israel was apportioned by the casting of lots. And the idea was it was the Lord in this way, this revelatory manner, who, who made the distribution. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, 
but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, this raises a question you're going to ask me, so I'll bring it up first. Why don't we cast lots today? Because we're not dealing with two things. We're not dealing with these unique situations for which we are not qualified biblically and for which we are not given responsibility to make the decision. The New Testament way, think of Romans 12, 20, 12, 2, 12, 1 and 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you'll be able to discern what is the will of the Lord. And so the casting of lots has not been the practice. In fact, even in the book of Acts, later on when they call the seven deacons, they don't cast lots. They appeal to the people. The other reason is the Holy Spirit had then come. So we're in this unique situation prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit in a matter for which they didn't even have the right to make a judgment. Casting the lots was the right thing to do. Bruce Milne writes, the church was asking the Lord to make his choice of the right man who was enrolled as an apostle. Well, there have been a surprising number of evangelical writers and preachers and scholars who've argued that this was all a mistake. And their main argument was, who is Matthias? How can we never hear of this person again? What did he ever accomplish for the Lord? He never shows up again at all. Well, let me just say that Luke does not indicate in any way that there was anything wrong with this. This is a a positive example, unique though the actual setting was. And by the way, we never hear about many of the other apostles. You know, the fact that someone may labor in obscurity does not mean they weren't called by the Lord. didn't mean they they played a useful role. The Lord had acted in a unique situation and answered a prayer. We can be confident that, as in all things, he did this well. Well, how do we prepare ourselves to be used by the Lord? Well, how do we make ourselves ready for an extraordinary situation where the Holy Spirit might come in power? If you're a young person, a new Christian, how do you prepare to serve the Lord. Well, let me conclude by saying that what we saw in the apostles is good counsel for us. And the first is this, become biblically qualified. Become biblically qualified to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be sound in your faith and doctrine. You cannot serve the Lord until you understand clearly what the gospel is. And you need need to understand the doctrine of the New Testament. It's very hard to be a useful Christian. If you cannot tell someone what it means to be saved, what it means to be justified, why do we believe that we're forgiven? What's the Bible's teaching on sanctification? If you don't have that right, you're going to do more harm than good. Qualify yourself by becoming sound in doctrine. I was converted at age 30. and We had a bookstore in the basement of the church, and the preacher would mention an author, and I would go down and buy a book by the author. That's one of the reasons I mentioned the the people, so that you'll know their names and you'll buy their books. I've been selling a lot of Phil Riken books in my Jeremiah series, and I'm happy if I have. And I began reading A.W. Pink and and, and R.C. Sproul and all these people, and and, 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 and Martin Louis, I remember the first time I bought a Martin Lloyd-Jones book, and I I didn't even have any sense I was going to be called into the ministry. I wanted to be useful to serve the Lord. I needed to be qualified with the knowledge of truth. Develop good habits and godly practices. Grow in your sanctification. You might look in 1 Timothy 3 at the biblical qualifications of an elder. Maybe you're never going to be an elder. Maybe you're a woman. You can never be an elder. But you can be respectable. You can have a good reputation with outsiders. You can be able. You can have a, a demonstrated track record of faithfulness. You can become mature, apt to teach, sound in faith and doctrine. I don't know what the Lord's going to do with you, but it's going to be great. You're going to be qualified to do so many things for the Lord if you say, I want to qualify myself 
to be a useful Christian in service to the Lord. Second of all, be constant in prayer. Seek to be biblically qualified to serve the Lord. Be constant in prayer. Ask the Lord to reveal your calling in life if you don't have a sense of what it is. Ask him for you to be ready to serve him as he may call you. Develop the habit and the spirit of prayer, which is not an easy thing. It is not a slight thing. Seek the Holy Spirit's power to mold and equip you, and you will be ready, as Paul put it in Ephesians 2.10, to do those good works which God prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. And then thirdly, remember the apostles were to be able to be witnesses of the resurrection. Well, you and I are not apostles, but we are building on the foundation they laid. And that means that we are to be, in our day, you and I, together with the Christians around the world, we are the living Christians of 2023, of this generation, and we are to bear a testimony to the living Christ. We're to give a testimony through the word of God to his atoning death, but to the fact that he lives. It's not just pie-in-the-sky doctrines. No, there's a risen, resurrected power of Christ. He lives, he sends the Holy Spirit, he changes lives. Yes, we're to be able to tell people biblically. Make sure you can do that. If someone says to you, why do you believe Jesus is raised from the dead? Be able to tell them. Matthew 24, Luke 24, 1 Corinthians 15. There's great books on that subject as well. But also be willing to show in your own life the power of the risen Christ through the sending of the Holy Spirit. Have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. You will never give testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ until you have first been born again. You must be born again as Nicodemus, who we presume was with them, was told by the Lord Jesus. You must believe. You must confess your sins and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. But then you'll be able to tell people why you believe, why you know that he lives, he reigns, and soon will come again. Wait for the Lord in the spirit of Isaiah 40, verse 31. And these things will be said. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Father in heaven, we pray these things for ourselves. And Father, we greatly desire to be used in our lifetimes, to be used as a church. And we would pray together with the, with the apostles of old that you would send your Holy Spirit. Lord, you have sent your Spirit once for all. We are the people and the church of Pentecost. Christ has ascended. Lord, you've seated him at the seat of power and authority your right hand he has poured out his spirit upon the church but we pray lord that you would specially bless our witness and labors and bless this sad world in which we live oh this wicked generation lord bless our nation bless the nations of our missionary partners for we can accomplish nothing apart from you we can do nothing send thy holy spirit lord we believe in the spirit send thou thy Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.